0: VS Orbit, a podcast for OpenVSwitch users and developers. This is episode 31. Like episode 27 on Dragonflow, this is another episode that I recorded and promptly forgot about. I have to apologize to my guest, A Panda, who's been kept waiting since December. I've changed how I keep track of recordings to make this kind of forgetfulness less likely in the future. On to the interview. Today, I'm talking to Panda, who is a PhD student uh, studying under Scott Shanker at Berkeley. And before we really jump into the discussion, uh, do you mind telling everyone a little bit more about uh, yourself and and your background so that people can know a little more about you? Sure. Uh, So I'm Panda.
1: I am currently a PhD candidate at Berkeley, which basically means I finished most of the things to graduate and I plan to be graduating in May. So I work with Scott and uh, mostly I that stuff is mostly on SDN and NFV and stuff that Scott is interested in. I also do some work with Jan on other distributed systemsy things. That's about it. And yeah, before this, I was at Microsoft for a bit. And that's actually relevant to this paper because some of the ideas of this
0: paper come from some stuff that happened at Microsoft. Oh, ah, okay. So uh, you, you've been involved in a lot of research uh, that, that seems to be worth discussing based on uh, what, I was, uh, what I've heard about you and what I've uh, seen uh, on, on your website. But specifically today I want to talk about uh, Netbricks, uh, which you presented at OSDI this year. Yeah. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Uh, so do you want to start out uh, by talking about the, the context and, and the background that, that led to it? The paper starts out with a lot of uh, introductory material and it, it seems like that context is pretty important.
1: Yeah, sure. So basically, right, there's been or there's been increasing recognition that there's software that we want to run on the data plane to process our packets. Uh, this is not necessarily a, a new thing. Like Bro, I was checking earlier today, has been around since '95, and clearly is run on the software da- on the data plane. But now there's a move towards network function virtualization, which I think you had up, you had someone talk about previously. On this oh, podcast,
0: oh right, yeah. In uh, in episode two, we had uh, Dave Neary from from Red Hat uh, talk about OP and and other uh, NFE topics.
1: Yeah, and so the idea is like lots of people want to figure out how to deploy software on a uh, uh, software running on commodity hardware, uh, commodity servers on on their network, and. The prevailing way to do this right now is you run these network functions, which are the software that's supposed to process your packet in VMs, and you connect them through a virtual network, which might be provided by OOVS or might be provided by BES or a bunch of other things. Now, one of the things that I think we noticed and actually like previously, uh, so uh, so you also talked to Ethan at some point about Softflow and previously Softflow made a similar observation was that as you leave the vSwitch to go up to the VM and come back away from the VM, that's adding a fair amount of latency and that's leading to some throughput loss. So people have in, in academia at least, been looking at this idea of let's move processing down into the data plane and uh, what how do you make it faster. And some of these proposals have been let's get rid of isolation because maybe that is what is, because there is some cost to switching uh, to getting data into a process and out of a process. And there's been some other ideas around how to do it. And so what Netbricks was trying to say is that yeah, you know, really, there is a serious problem. Every time you're switching into a process and switching out of a process, it's expensive. For performance, NFs are generally run on their own core. So what you end up doing is going through some cache, uh, cache traffic to get to another core. And instead, let's you know make it so that you remove process level isolation. You run everything as a single process, but you still give all the benefits of isolation which is important because to an extent, I think isolation has been what has allowed us to have really complex software because I don't have to reason about what someone else's crazy or well-written software will do to my software. And they don't have to worry about the crappy software that I write going and crashing their system or crashing their software. And so NetRix started out as this idea of could we we preserve the benefits of isolation and yet remove some of these overheads that... uh, Things like Softflow and other papers have observed, and then the next part was so I I'm not I'm very I'm reasonably new to networking. I used to do a lot of systems. I'm very used to systems stuff, but networking has always been this black art for me, where I don't know what how people do it, how people can program it, and I actually I would be the first to admit I really don't know how it works in industry today.
0: Well, personally, I found that uh, that systems people take to networking quickly because uh, uh, networking is easier than systems.
1: Yeah, but uh, but anyway, so one of the things I observed is like
0: in systems these days, especially for complicated systems, lots of people
1: have built frameworks around, let me make it simpler for you to write applications. Right. Um, MapReduce perhaps being the most commonly cited one, but it's not the only one. It's, pretty co- it's, it's something that we've seen in a lot of areas. And NFs seem to still be written by experts who are and it's quite low level and you can so this is a weird academic joke but you can get an nsdi paper in for writing a decent nf Uh, (laughs) i know this because google did it last year sure and it should be and it seems like it would be more approachable to people if we gave them tools that made it easier to write these things and maybe that's the only way we will see so people have been talking about NFV is this excellent way to get new applications into networks. And perhaps there have been new applications, but, you know, if you go around and ask even relatively smart people who work in the industry, what is the new NFV application that you've heard about? No one no one really has a good answer. And maybe making it easier to write these would get us some really
0: cool new applications that we haven't seen before. Gotcha. Uh, I've been speculating that one of the reasons that NFE has been catching on slowly is just because telcos move slowly. But I, I think you have a point. Uh, I, I can. I, is it a fair summarization that one of your positions is that the, the move to NFE has been slow because... Building the network functions is slow, is is hard, and because uh, running the the network functions is hard.
1: Yes, building is hard, and that makes it hard for people to write new ones. Running is hard, and that makes it makes telcos reluctant because they need to figure out how to, how exactly should they provision their networks? How should they deploy them? How should they get all of the benefits they want?
0: Okay, so that that's sort of the the background or the context on on why NetBricks came about. So now let's uh, shift along to what NetBricks actually is. So uh, if if I understand the paper right, it provides an environment for developing and implementing network functions. And paper starts out by describing the the programming abstractions. Mm-hmm. Is that a good place to start sure, about talking about what it is?
1: Yeah, of course. So. Uh Okay, so the programming abstractions were based on this observation that if you start thinking about how NFs could be written or how NFs have been written, and again, I present only the academic view because I honestly don't know that much about the industry view.
0: Well, I, I don't think industry has a standard way to build these things yet, sure. and the, the academic work is definitely going to influence that.
1: Okay, so one way has been the click way, which is you take these elements and you chain them together, but one of the things people f- have, f- and this is what BESS also does, When I, I know that you haven't had any podcast on BESS probably, but BESS is, a, is another piece of work that I'm involved with at Berkeley, and it's, again, a software switch which is meant for programmability. Uh, it's this idea of you have modules and you chain them together the problem is you give programmers complete freedom to write these modules out and one of the things that programmers realize is that well you know if if you add modularity if you add if you make it so that your nf looks like a lot of small modules chained together the performance is worse than if you just big one uh, build one big module the problem with building one big module though is if you know, a year from now, someone comes up with a really cool way to optimize some functionality that you you have built into that module. They need to go and change every NF to take advantage of that functionality. So our idea was that instead of allowing for that, we follow something which looks a lot more like what MapReduce frameworks like Spark look like. So we have a small set of primitives. And these primitives are about what should happen to packets. So for example, there's a primitive for going through every packet and maybe updating external state, but not the packets themselves. There's a primitive for updating the packets themselves. There's a primitive for deciding to drop some packets. And there are primitives for branching and merging branches, which are are the obvious programming operations that we're all used to. And this is not necessarily a complete list of primitives and that we, you know, as one of the things that I've been trying to do recently has been to go and find applications and see, would they be more conveniently expressed with a few more primitives? So the hope is that we can find a relatively small set of primitives that is sufficient for implementing, uh, implementing all of the actions done to packets. Now, there's a separate part, which is choosing what packets to apply the actions to or describing the actions themselves. So, for example, if you're dropping packets, you might want to provide a way to choose what packets to drop. And that, of course, depends on the NF you're writing. So to allow freedom there, these act- so we implement these primitives that do something to the packet. And we allow programmers to provide us with user-defined functions that allow us to... Uh, that allow them to specify where when those actions are performed on packets or what those actions do. So for f- for filtering, which is dropping packets, they can say this packet gets dropped. This packet doesn't get dropped. For branching, they can say this packet goes on the left branch. This packet goes on the right branch. And of course, we actually allow so our branching operation in a not databases is called group by. So of course we allow infinitely many groups, or not infinitely, but finitely many groups, but user, uh, but the programmer gets to specify the number of groups. The idea is now that all of the things about how you should, for example, allocate packets, free packets, how you should send branch packets across different things, how you should send packets across cores, things that are common to all NFs, are, it's the responsibility of the framework to implement and optimize them, and our implementations right now are relatively naive like we've taken all the lessons we've learned from building best and other ns but you know i'm sure that as time goes on and as intel produces its gazillion new uh, optimizations that they seem to produce uh, release in everything and as you know, Nix or other people get offload capabilities. We'll be able to take care of. And we'll be able to use those too. But the idea is that those primitives—it's our responsibility to optimize. If someone comes up with a better way to batch packets or a better way how they should be allocated or dropped or other things, it's the framework which does it. The only thing the programmer of the NF is responsible for is implementing their logic well. And for most NFs that we have implemented, the lo- the logic that's NF specific is reasonably small and is easy, and it's easier for people to reason about. So that's the programming model that we are supporting. Mm-hmm. Now, this allows some other things that we haven't implemented. So this model is not quite an algebra because we have user-defined functions, but you can reason about what's happening to packets. For example, you know if packets are going to be modified. You know when packets are going to be dropped. And you can take some of the lessons from database optimization or other places and try applying them to, a sim- to, this, to this place, to this space. So as an example, um, if you're going to drop packets, dropping them as early as possible is actually probably a good idea because it's just it's natural you're reducing the amount of processing you have to do late, later and that's something we can actually try to reason about because we we can use very simple program analysis because of some of the assumptions that we make and some and look at the entire at this dag and try to move dag elements around to try to get better performance. Not something we've done yet, but working on it. Similarly, for state management or other things, we, are th- we think that this, this separation allows us to give you neat ways to express what consistency guarantees you need on your state without actually having to implement those state variables that meet those consistency guarantees all the time. Uh, Basically, it's better to use an existing map, for example, than to write your own hash map that gives you a fancy mechanism. And what Netbricks is trying to provide is exactly that sort of functionality for everyone
0: who wants to write an NF. Great. So uh, when you write a program in Netbricks, uh, what does it look like? Does it look like a, a, a normal program that I'd, I'd think of? Or are, are we instantiating primitives and connecting them? What, what, what's the sort of the programming paradigm?
1: It's the latter. So you're instantiating and connecting primitives. It looks a lot like if you're used to any data flow style programming model, it looks a lot like that. So you would say something like, so suppose you're writing an nf often you will take as input a a packet batch which is just an abstract source of packets and then you could say something like oh okay so first I want to parse out up to the ip header so you could have you could a- put in a couple of parse nodes that do the parsing to get you there. Then you could have group by or other things. So it, it just looks like, so it's as you said, it's you're instantiating a set of, it looks like you're instantiating a set of elements. We try to make it look like you're calling functions, but that's what you're really doing and you connect them together.
0: How natural a programming model is it for people who are, are, are new to
1: the, the idea? That's an excellent question. I don't know the answer. Obviously, one of the reasons it was picked was it was natural to me, and but perhaps that's because a lot of the other work that I've been involved with appears in a similar way. So this is basically what every MapReduce framework that I've used looks like. Uh, it's also what a lot of database queries can be structured as, if you think about it. So I don't think it is too hard, but I, I'm not sure I, mean, I, I would be... The, I haven't gone out and asked that many people.
0: Oh, fair enough. So uh, I understand that it's uh, implemented in in Rust. Mm -hmm. I've heard of Rust, but I don't know much about it. Is it a a programming language that uh, people who are familiar with, say, C or Java, uh, will feel comfortable with? Uh,
1: I think so. So I think the way to describe the way lots of people have described Rust is that it's the syntax looks C-like. It has some features from ML or other places that, if you're used to them, you might find use, You might find cool. Even if you're not used to them, you might find them interesting. So it has pattern matching, which is always fun to use. The only problem is it values safety over a lot of other things. And people, com- some like, especially if you're a beginner, it there's su- there's a hurdle where you feel like every time you type in some code, it tells you, "Nope, I cannot prove that that is safe, and you shall go rewrite it or add some annotations to make it feel safer."
0: So is that mainly a type checking problem, or like how in say ML your programs are generally safe, or the or the compiler will report a type error, or or is it something else? It is type checking, but there is a little bit more than type checking,
1: which is if you look through the paper, we talk about the use of unique types, and there is something, and this is something that. Rust had implemented for other reasons than what we provided here, and they check for that property. So the idea is basically that if you build a programming language or a programming model where you think that concurrency is very likely, one of the things that would be cool to do is to make sure that concurrency bugs like data races do not happen. But doing that at compile time is hard if you think about it like we don't we don't normally think we normally think about race detectors as something you might do model checking or run on runtime on Rust tries to do it at compile time and that adds a little bit of overhead in terms of coding because there is this concept of you can borrow a value or you can borrow a variable But when you have borrowed a variable, you cannot allow, you don't want to allow two mutable borrows to a variable because that would be the equivalent of maybe you took the first borrow and passed it to thread one, and you took the second borrow and passed it to thread two, and now thread one and thread two can both modify the variable and life is really bad. So there's a little bit of additional overhead because of this extra kind of typing that's in there. So it's all of the problems from ML with with typing, which I, I don't feel is too bad, but Maybe other people disagree, and then it's this a little bit extra because of this.
0: Okay, so if I understand right, then mm-hmm. a unique type lets you transfer ownership of a variable yes. or an object as yes. long as you don't keep a copy yourself. Precisely. So it, it, it ensures that there's uh, only only one use of it in a program at a given time. Uh, precisely. And uh, I I think I understand why that's useful, but I, I I don't think we've actually described it, so it might be might be oh. worth explaining.
1: Sure. Uh, sorry. So actually, like, so one way to look at it is virtual networks, which connect NFs, should emulate real networks, which connect middle boxes or, progr- or servers. Now, one of the nice things about real networks is suppose I'm a server and Ben is a server. When I send Ben my, a packet, I can no longer see what is in the, I can no longer change the packet, and I can no longer see what processing Ben is carrying out on the packet. And this is sort of useful because one, it allows Ben to be sure that once he receives the packet, whatever he sees is what I sent him and he can do whatever he wants with that input. So the input cannot change under him. But the other thing is it allow it makes sure that you you don't have to worry about, oh, if I do this to my packet, am I really revealing some information that could be a, an exploit or something? So how to implement this in software? The common way is you copy packets. So everyone gets their own copy. When I send my packet, someone can make a copy and give it to the next person, and they get their own copy. And we're both happy because we have our own packet. Copying is slow. So the other alternative is this sort of ownership transfer. I own the packet, and as long as I own the packet, I I have access to it. When I send it, I lose ownership. And someone else gets ownership, and they get to access the packet and that essentially makes it so that we have exactly those semantics and we only pay copying costs when it's necessary so if i really need to keep the entire an entire copy of the packet around of course i need to copy it but that's my problem, I wrote my NF that way. It's not because the system was imposing this on
0: me. I, I guess maybe to, to recap, yeah. in normal software system that, that's not based on this concept, if uh, say function A gives a packet to function B, there's no way for B to know that A isn't somehow modifying the packet behind its back.
1: Yeah, precisely. But unless you copy, unless you unless unless you use a v switch which is trusted to co- make a copy of the packet, right? And make sure that oh, A doesn't have access to
0: the copy. And so, uh, unique types provide uh, a way to assure it at at compile time. Yeah. That doesn't involve overhead at runtime with yeah. things like uh, memory protection and so on. There is no overheads at at runtime for that particular fun- uh, feature. It, it's a way to to prove that that it happens correctly. Yes.
1: Uh, now the problem is. Of course, this is a very hard property to prove, and so because of that, to make the proof, make it so that the proof is actually tractable, uh, Rust imposes some constraints. So, for example, generally, if you look at how Rust uses it, you can prove it by just looking within a closure, rather than having to look across. Uh, So, within a within a scope is all you need to look. You don't need to reason about uh, ownerships across the program completely, which. Might or might not sometimes lead to unhappiness when you're trying to do certain things,
0: so sometimes it it makes it more difficult to write the code, yes, or it you
1: the way someone else described it to me is you need to start thinking in this random rust way of writing code, which could be a bit different from. Because, in c in c or c plus plus, we would happily pass around multiple references to the same memory. i I know that thing will take a lock before it accesses that. why Why do you want me to do anything else to that?
0: Sure. So it requires a a little bit of a, yeah. of of a shift in terms of how yeah. you think about the code as you write it. yeah okay. that that sounds fair. Your paper talks about this uh, under the name of zero copy software isolation. Mm-hmm. Zixi, is that how yeah. you pronounce it? Yeah. That, that, that's
1: how we pronounce it. It
0: uh, sounds like it's even smaller than SCSI. <laughs> well, it was, yeah, we went through a bunch of names and that one stuck. <laughs> so uh, is there is there more to it or is the, the use of a unique type, the uh, um, is that ZCSI, is that ZIXI?
1: No, so actually, um, so, uh, you know, to give credit where credit is due, uh, ZIXI is two parts and some of it, so one part of it, which is the idea of, so the first part is use software to do isolation. So the way people do isolation for processes today is through the use of page tables. So what, what happens is each process gets its own virtual address space. The kernel decides what physical address is accessible through that virtual address. And as a result, as long as long as long as you trust the kernel to not screw with you, everyone gets their own their own section of physical memory and people are happy with it now actually this is relatively unexplored and or unknown to a lot of people but there has been this, there have been these repeated attempts at we sh- maybe we should not be using this mechanism and the reason is that once you start making message passing very common, which is, f- for example, true for microkernels or for NFV, where really message passing is really common. Like, I- I've worked on microkernel systems. No one ever talked about 20 million messages per second. That's an absurd number. Why, why the hell are you doing that? But. Even in microkernels, people talked about the fact that just getting messages across these process boundaries might be expensive, and people have gone back and forth on how expensive it is or not. So there have been a chain of systems. So the ones I know of are Spin, which came out of the University of Washington, and then Singularity, which came out of Microsoft Research uh, approximately when uh, like a year or two before I graduated from college, uh, have both looked at this idea of, could we use types to provide isolation? For a while, for about three years, I worked on a venture to try to commercialize the lessons from Singularity within Microsoft. And I had that in the back of my mind that that was this cool way to get isolation between processes. Mm-hmm. And then, but the problem was it wasn't clear wh- where it was useful because, you know, most processes don't communicate. Is it really that useful there? And uh, so for NFV, it, see, it seemed, yeah, you know, given these massive packet numbers that everyone wants, maybe what we need is go, to go uh, to revisit that idea. So that's one part of zero copies. So, or one part of the soft, that's the software isolation part of Zixi. The zero copy part is unique types, which is just to give you these this message semantic that wouldn't be available otherwise, because the s- software isolation part only makes sure that everyone gets their own section of memory. The problem is, Packets, there's legitimate reason why the NF why one NF had access to it before
0: sending it to the next one. So that's why you need the unique types to pan the transfer ownership around. Okay, that that makes sense. When uh, I I I come from a virtualization background, so I, I tend to think of this as another way to uh, to do virtualization. Yeah. And what I've always found in virtualization is that partitioning isolation that's the easy part. It's the controlled sharing. Yeah. Uh, that's the the more complicated part because stuff that's totally isolated. Is also totally useless. You you need to be able to communicate.
1: Yeah, precisely. Uh, pr- precisely, like I- isolation is very useful for writing code, but isolation by itself means nothing because I have this program. It's running. It does not produce output. And is it running? Does anyone know?
0: <laughs> We've talked a lot about abstractions and uh, how how you can use them, but it's still a little bit abstract. Your, your paper gives the details for a, a couple of examples. Do you mm-hmm. want to talk about how one of those examples uh, fits into uh, the netbricks? System? Sure. Sure. So actually the paper
1: mostly the examples the paper's ge- paper gives are mostly about how to build a single nf and in particular the one it gives is how to build maglev which was this nf that uh, Google had at NSDI recently. And and what does maglev do? So maglev is is an is an L3 load balancer. It's um, it's relatively it's a relatively simple thing as with all L3 load balancers you receive packets and you uh, you use some consistent hashing mechanism to get the packet to the correct uh, server. The only thing that Maglev needs to deal with, which I also think is common to a lot of L3 load balancers, is that the s- the servers, the origin servers in, s- in some sense, or the servers that it's load balancing between, might go away, come, uh, or new ones might get launched as you see spikes in traffic or other things. So load balancing with elasticity. Yeah. And basically their technique for doing this is if you think about it for five minutes, this is the technique you would come up with. You receive a packet, you hash the flow ID, ID, or basically take the flow, the five tuple, and hash it together. Use the hash to compute what server it should go to use a consistent hashing algorithm across all of your load balancers. So, oh, by the way, this is the bit that I forgot to mention. Maglev assumes that you might have multiple load balancers because uh, you might be using a switch to switch traffic, or to spread traffic across these load balancers, and then you have these software load balancers that finally get it to the right server.
0: So you have a couple of levels of load balancers? Yeah, you
1: might have, yeah, precisely, because otherwise your load balancer will become the bottleneck. And then, so, given, so, so okay, so basically, whenever a software thing receives, the, uh, so one of the software load balancers receives a packet, it hashes the flow, uses this to pick a machine, and, of course, because you want to make sure that the machine it picks is it remains the same, even when you scale up or scale down, it records this in, some in a hash map within itself as a state.
0: It's keeping per connection state. It's keeping
1: per connection state. Now, they're very clear about saying that they're fine with this state being wrong occasionally. So they're not looking for very strong guarantees on consistency. So they expect that under certain circumstances, for example, cases where a load balancer fails and the server scale up simultaneously, you might end up disconnecting a few things or ending a few connections. They're fine with that. Their key contribution is that they have a new consistent hashing algorithm, uh, which they say gives them better, uh, which they claim gives them better spread uh, or more even load balancing than existing consistent hashing algorithms. Uh, this is p- probably true. There's been like, what, 20 years of people building different consistent hashing algorithms. Uh, depends on your workload, et cetera, et cetera. So we implemented this in nets, and it's relatively simple. What we did was we took their consistent hashing algorithm and we implemented that that's about a hundred and something lines of code. The rest of it was very simple. it was remember how I said we express nfs as these as as these elements hooked together. It was just receive these packets uh, extract the flow, which for us requires parsing the mac header out and then uh, making sure it's the right thing and getting out the flow uh, getting out the flow then Pass the flow to this consistent, ha- consi- or then check if the flow is in state that the, uh, that the NF has lying around. If it is, send it to the appropriate server according to that. If not, use the consistent hashing algorithm to compute a new hash and, ins- uh, and fix it and send it out. The other bit of this is we had a control, we had a control plane thread that was responsible for updating the consistent hashing algorithm whenever new servers were added or removed. Um, now, the thing that was nice about this was Google has a fairly large team still dedicated to maintaining and building these this load balancer. For us, it was about 250 lines of code. I wouldn't claim that it is as w- it probably has features, it doesn't have some features that Google has around like it doesn't hook up to any fancy graphing system that can show you what the load is or any of these other things. But the thing is, our really simple, implementation written by one grad student goes about four or five x faster than Google does right now. (laughs) So even if we assume that a lot of that performance will be lost when we add this functionality in, there is headroom to lose that performance and get to where Google is. And so the other statement that some people make is perhaps Google doesn't care about the performance that much and they care about maintainability. And my argument there is 200 lines of code is a lot more maintainable. Than two hundred thousand lines of code, and this is two hundred lines of code with comments and everything else. And yes, maybe it's maybe the style could be improved and it would explode a bit more. But the thing is, even the best written two hundred thousand lines of code that I have ever had to maintain have still required more cognitive effort to maintain than a small program. It's just what everyone finds.
0: Absolutely. So, uh, do you have some speculation why it's so much faster?
1: I have three sources that I can come up with, I don't know, I don't know how much to attribute to each of these. The first is we, you, we obviously don't have Google's hardware specs, so I don't know, for example, if they're running their servers in some weird power saving mode where things are slow. Just no way to do it. The second is Google actually chose to write its own packet I.O. framework because I think, as is true for a lot of companies, they don't want to take a dependency on dpdk or netmap or any of the other existing things and it's entirely plausible that there are just tricks that these people that dpdk or netmap or other people have implemented that google hasn't gotten around to implementing like it's not the there's a lot of hacks within dpdk that are non-obvious that you would actually do it or not do it i think the third one is just i i think some of the places where we I would almost certainly bet that like every other person who writes an nf for uh, they Google went out and implemented a new storage layer or a new hash map layer for the for the state that it was storing and people have been doing this for a long time even within Intel I know of at least four projects that are implementing cuckoo hashing and the thing that I've found is that those things might be very cool to implement and they're fun to work on but Actually, like a lot of shipping hash maps in a lot of decent languages, like take the C++ STL hash map or the Boost hash map. If you lo- if you tune them right, or if you just look at them, or if you just like figure out what parameters to pass in, they're really not that badly performing. They they're they're pretty well designed for workloads, and people have spent a ton of time on them, and there is value to reusing that part. So I would guess like it's just some places we didn't go out all the way out or we didn't go all the way and implement some new fancy structure and that actually is helpful.
0: So you feel like uh, reusing the existing high quality libraries are one of the uh, yeah. likely reasons it performs Probably. better.
1: And then as I said, some of it is of course that they have some functionality that I don't have. Of course,
0: if you spend 50 extra cycles per packet, that number is going to fall. That makes sense. What I see in the Netbricks paper is a, a lot of new valuable concepts that are, are good ways to structure new systems, but it seems like the paper itself is very oriented around performance. I, I counted up and it looks like about four and a half pages out of the 12 pages are performance evaluation. So that that means that you spent a lot of time focusing on, on the performance. Did you feel like the, the approach needed a lot of performance justification?
1: I don't know, I think the answer is I think my answer is it's, it seemed to be a good way to try to get the paper in, which is ultimate. Which is ultimately my goal. I apologize.
0: Some, sometimes uh, graphs and charts and numbers uh, will really impress program committees, yes?
1: And to be honest, I've looked at a lot of NFV papers over the course of the last four or five years. And one of the things that I've realized is that not many of them, and my paper is included in this, by the way, like Netflix has this problem too. Um, I think we don't compete on features that much, usually, or like you know, that's why the evaluation is such an important part, because I think often we don't really know what the features are supposed to be. So for some things, we do, so like if you look at E2, which is another paper that I've been in, I was involved in, E2, I think, has much less evaluation than this, but that's because it's easy to explain what the primary problem is in e2. We want to you want to scale up and manage a cluster quickly. But when it comes to something low level of, I have a single machine, I'm trying to run this uh, this pipeline very quickly, or I want to allow other people to write NFs, which truly is what some of this was inspired by, I don't know how to evaluate it because I, pres- I don't know what people want. I don't know what the complex NFs out there are or how people run them or what other workloads they want. I, I think for some reason, at least in academia we've settled on the fact that packets per second is the number that sells gotcha and if that's the case then you know it make it made sense to me to produce as many packets per second like it's also easy right it's the lazy way out to sell the paper
0: well it it's definitely a a good way to compare things quantitatively yeah, yeah. so uh, you you said that it was much faster than than maglev. Do you want to summarize any of the other performance results?
1: So I guess the other performance results were if you do not have a lot of processing per packet, uh, net breaks can give you faster performance than any system where you go to the vSwitch, you go to a single NF, and you leave that NF, and you go back to the network. Uh, I think the the difference there can be as high as 7 or 8x. Once processing starts to come into the picture, it's uh, a, the single core performance eventually merges. If you think about this, this makes perfect sense. At some point, uh, we are only saving you some I.O. costs and some costs of entering and exiting a VM. However, even in that case, when you start doing scale out and you actually start scaling NFs across cores, uh netbricks can perform better because one we need to use fewer cores we're not we don't ha- have to assign any cores to the vSwitch two we can do run to completion scheduling which is helpful for certain classes of NFs. And three, like we just what we end up doing is instead of having so instead of using we can actually replicate the pipeline multiple times once per core and that gives you some performance benefit. Of course, if you think about this logically, at some point, you know, uh, you can't replicate anymore and get benefits because you will run out of PCI bus bandwidth or you will run out of, you'll you'll start affecting caching for each other. And those parts, then uh, we fall back to exactly similar performance to what you would get
0: normally. Okay, that, that all makes a, a lot of sense and, and fits in with the sorts of experience yeah. I, I have as well. Netbricks is definitely a, a research vehicle. Do you have ambitions for it uh, outside of research?
1: Personally, I am looking more at the research angle right now. So, so this is like one of the first steps. I want to look at things like, so we've talked about things like fault tolerance, which again, I've done work on before, but there's no existing implementation for fault transfer NFs. Uh, Scaling, there's not really good answers to how you scale NFs. So I want to add all of those into network, so that's the research part that I'm looking at. There are people in various companies, including like, I think someone at AT AT&T is looking at it, and some some random people are looking at it, where they're trying to see I don't know, they're trying to look at it more commercially or more as what they can do with the system overall. I'm not currently involved in any of those efforts. It would probably be good for its long-term viability. I'm more looking for academic research-style things, so it's it's not where I have been focusing my attention recently.
0: Well, I was going to ask you what you're going to work on next, but it, it sounds like you uh, um, you have some plans to add some more features to to Netbrex.
1: Yeah. Um, that and well, the other thing actually that I've been very curious about, and I'd actually be curious if you or other people have any views on this, is like what could one do with all of this, with all all of this NF style power out there. So one of the things that I've lately been considering is could we use network visibility to do some sort of global behavior analysis for applications built as microservices. So so what I mean by this is like, I really like D trace like systems where, you know, you go and you have these nice trace probes and you write out a little script that says, please tell me when, wh- why my system is doing this. I also like the use of assertions, assert that my system is in this state when this function is called because otherwise, I don't know what you want me to do with this function. And I don't actually know how one does that with microservices because you have these little isolated units and how are you supposed to reason about this? And it seems like uh, if you look at systems like Dapper, they basically are saying, ah, let's look at the messaging layer, and we can use the messaging layer to analyze this. But they're doing post facto analysis. Uh, so something bad happened, then you go look at the messages and see some, why did this bad, something bad happen. And one of the things that I'm very curious about is uh, so some of my work is in programming languages. And so one of the things I'm curious about is, could we take assertions and convert them into a form so, such that we could have very simple local NFs that just check those and assert when something is broken? And what would it take to do that? And basically, like I think NFs are very cool. I, I've heard from various people that they're now a dead academic research topic. So maybe I'm just barking at the wrong tree. But they are like, it's like any other system. They're a cool thing. They're a cool toy to play with, but I don't think we know what is the how how to how to use them for something like how to use them for something non-standard. It means firewalls are always going to be important. Uh, uh, like fifty years from now, hundred years from now, no matter what fancy security system someone comes up with, there will be a firewall somewhere. But. You know that's boring. What about the rest of this?
0: What do you think that Open vSwitch users and developers should should learn from this uh, uh, this effort?
1: I would guess there are many developers and users for Open vSwitch who do different things. I, actually, I once built like random crap on Open vSwitch for uh, for reliability. But I think increasingly we are seeing people deploy network appliances, uh, our software for network appliances on top of Open vSwitch. I think the question you should consider is, uh, for many of these things, one of the the questions that you can consider is, how much work does a single network appliance do versus how many different network appliances you have? And of course, having many different network appliances is probably like is a part of the Unix philosophy almost, right? Like have a single simple thing. But what NetBreaks was trying to show is that every time you're exiting and leaving one of these VMs, you're starting to incur some overheads. So there is also value in having the one large network appliance that does a lot of things because you stop having that problem. So I think the thing that Netflix is trying to quantify very concretely is what is the, what is the gap between those two? The second thing is... Maybe if you're someone who's actually writing the software that goes into a network appliance or into one of these virtual network functions, you should think about how to structure your code so you still get isolation. I, I think lots of people have come up to me and said, we don't care about isolation for our internal code because we trust everyone. Isolation's not about trust. It's about, it's about limiting your cognitive overload, o- overhead. When you want to reason about code, if the fewer lines of code you have to reason about, the easier it is. And that's the lesson that I would guess, like, if you're a developer, to take away, like, don't think of isolation as this thing you do for security. That's one use case. It's not even a very good use case because everyone seems to violate isolation all the time. There's like ten bugs on any given day for hypervisors breaking out of their isolation boundary.
0: I guess I think of uh, of, of it as trust in a different way. Uh, there's trusting people not to do malicious things, and there's trusting people not to make mistakes, not to have bugs in their code. I, I mostly trust the developers I work with not to be malicious, but I know that every one of us uh, has bugs in our code
1: exactly. You'd have to be extremely arrogant to say, I have no I will never introduce a bug. Like it just doesn't happen. Everyone has a bad day. everyone even and even on good days, things are hard
0: absolutely. So uh, we're kind of coming to the, uh, the, the end here. Uh, is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know?
1: No, that's, that was all I had. And yeah, thanks for inviting me. This is great. I've never been on a podcast before.
0: Well, thanks a lot for coming. If listeners want to uh, contact you with uh, comments or questions, what's the best way to do it? So my email address is apanda. So that's
1: A as in apple and panda as the bear uh, at uh, cs.berkeley.edu. And yeah, just feel free to send me an email.
0: And it looks like you're on Twitter, too. Uh, do you, yeah. Are you active there?
1: I check it all the time. I saw, for example, you had tweeted yesterday. I don't tweet all that often, but if you send me a DM or if you tweet at me, I will definitely respond. So there, it's at apanda. All
0: right, great. Well, thanks again. OVS Orbit is edited and produced by Ben Pfaff using Audacity audio editing software and released under the Creative Commons Unported 3.0 license. The intro and bumper music in this episode is excerpted from Electro Deluxe by My MyFreeMickey and the outro from Girls Like You by Stefan Kartenberg, both under the Creative Commons Attribution Unported 3.0 license. For more episodes of OVS Orbit, visit ovsorbit.org. Or for more information about OpenVSwitch, visit openvswitch.org.